Today's reading is from the book of Mark, chapter 4, verses 1 through 34. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teachings, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and hundredfold. And he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not in a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is nothing secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use it, it will, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. The word of the Lord. Here's a quote. Jesus's parables are among the best known and most influential stories in the world. Even if people know nothing of Jesus, they either know about his stories 
or have encountered their impact in expressions like prodigal or good Samaritan. The importance of the parables of Jesus can hardly be overestimated. At no point are the vitality, relevance, and usefulness of the teaching of Jesus so clear as in his parables. Jesus was the master creator of story. And nothing is so attractive or so compelling as a good story. Children and adults do not say, oh, tell me some facts. (laughs) No. They want a story. Stories are inherently interesting. Discourse, we tolerate. To story, we attend. Story entertains, informs, motivates, authenticates, and mirrors existence. Now, those are the opening words uh, to to a book called Stories with Intent that was written by the now-retired North Park Theological Seminary professor, uh, Klein Snodgrass. And and it's really just one of the most masterful treatments of of the last couple of decades of Jesus' parables. And parables, we find, are, are as old as human communication. As long as human beings have been communicating with one another, they have been using parables. They transcend culture, they transcend religion, but no one mastered parables quite like Jesus. Teaching in parables, that was his calling card, which raises some extremely interesting questions that I want us us to mull over this morning, like, what exactly is a parable? That's a basic question, but it's, it's actually a really interesting one to try to answer. And, 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 and then that leads to another question, which is, why did Jesus embrace this particular method of teaching? There's lots of ways to teach people. So why did Jesus land on this? And lastly, what exactly do Jesus' parables mean? So I want us to look at those three things this morning. And, you know, Jesus is a master teacher, and Mark has let us know that much so far. He, he said that, that, that one of the reactions to Jesus' teaching in the synagogues was that, that people were amazed they were astounded. He, he taught as one with authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. And so, wow, that, you know, that is, really makes us interested. I wonder what the content of that teaching was that was so astounding to everyone. But Mark is sort of held back on us till we get to this point in Mark chapter 4. Finally, we learn not just that Jesus was this great teacher, but what exactly it was that made him so great. Now, Jesus, in the Gospel of Mark, he, he does the least amount of teaching, actually, when we compare it to the, to the other Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John. But, but the tent poles of Jesus' teaching that we see in Mark are, are these parables that we get a bunch of them here in Mark chapter 4, and, and later on in Mark chapter 12, we get another parable there with the, with the parable of the, the vineyard. And so these two parables, these tent poles of Jesus' teaching in Mark, they're absolutely essential to understanding Mark's Christology, meaning, meaning, you know, what does Jesus believe? What does he want us to know and understand about who Jesus was and what Jesus did? And so then in Mark chapter 4, what we're learning isn't just Jesus' parables, but also who Jesus understands himself to be based on hearing these parables. Here, here we don't just learn about Jesus' teachings, Though we learn that, but we also get to learn about the teacher. It's remarkable. And the amazing thing about Jesus, and Mark for that matter, is that when he wants us to understand who Jesus is, what he came to do, he doesn't use abstract theological language. You know, I'm the incarnation of the pre-existent Logos. I'm the eternally begotten Son of the Father. I'm the second person of the Trinity, etc., etc. There's a time and a place for that language in Christian discourse, but, but no, when Jesus wants people to understand who he is and what he came to do, he does what all truly great teachers do. He tells a story. He taught them, as our passage says, many things in parables. 
which raises that, that wonderful basic question of what is a parable exactly? Now, this is a question, uh, you know, uh, Helen of Troy had, had the face that launched, what, a thousand ships? This question, what is a parable? This is, is the question that has launched more than a thousand PhD dissertations in New Testament over the course of the past century. And, 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 and seas worth of ink have been spilled coming up with definitions uh, uh, to this question. Some of them helpful, but many of them not. But here, there's some ones that have become kind of famous and popular, and, and one of them is from uh, this fellow named William Barclay, and, and he wrote this very influential series of popular New Testament uh, commentaries in the middle of the 20th century. And, and Barclay was famous because he kind of brought biblical scholarship to the people, uh, to the masses. And so he defined parables as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And you can see that's like a nice sounding definition that that sounds really good it catches the ear and um but i think it, it what barclay does there is he introduces too much of a division between heaven and earth where jesus's whole ministry was was about heaven strangely and mysteriously coming to earth but then there's this one from ch dodd who was this oxbridge new testament scholar again mid 20th century and his was probably the most influential um academic definition, and it's not boring to say it's academic, but academic definition in the English-speaking world. And he said, at its simplest, the parable is a metaphor or a simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness, and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. That's a good definition. There's a lot going on there, but I think that's a pretty darn good definition. Metaphor, simile, drawn from nature, drawn from common life. We see that already. And it's vivid or it's strange. And, and, and you have to kind of think for yourself about what should I do in light of hearing this story. That's good. That's good. There's other good ones too, though. Uh, the Danish existentialist Soren Kierkegaard, he said that parables were a form of indirect communication meant to, quote, deceive the hearer into the truth. I like that definition because it makes me think of, of Nathan, the prophet, telling King David, probably, you know, the most famous parable in the Old Testament, the story about the rich man and the poor man, and the poor man had a ewe lamb, his most prized possession, and the rich man said, well, I have a visitor to my house, and so I'm not going to take one of my lambs, I'll take the poor man's ewe lamb and slaughter it and feed it to my, feed it to my guest. And David hears this story, and he is outraged at the injustice, and he says, we have to do something about this. And then what does Nathan say? You are the man. Nathan, in telling this parable, he has deceived David into the truth, right? Deceived him into acknowledging his own sin. Now, Snodgrass has his own definition, which is also good. It's not as long as Dodd's, but he says, parables are an expanded analogy meant to convince and persuade. Then he fleshes it out and says, this is a wonderful phrase, that parables are imaginary gardens with real toads in them. They create an imaginary world that reflects reality. And so parables are just this way of placing a picture in front of reality to help us understand, or maybe to obscure our understanding, challenge our understanding. They are one way of saying, you know, this right here is really like that over there, the, the kingdom of God. What's it like? It's like a mustard seed, which is the tiniest of all seeds. And so parables are meant to evoke our imaginations as to what God is like and what God is up to in the world, and then provoke us into action as faithful followers of Jesus. So evoke our imaginations and provoke us to thought and action. That's what parables are doing. 
And so why did Jesus teach in parables? You know, why didn't he just tell people what he wanted them to know concretely and, 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 and directly? This objection was raised in our life group this past week. You know, if what Jesus had to say was so important, why didn't he just out and say it? Why did he shroud it in pictures and puzzles and mysteries? You know, Jesus, instead of saying, well, the kingdom of God is like this, he just sort of said, the kingdom of God is. Fill in the blank. It seems as though, if we read Mark chapter 4 here, one of the reasons that Jesus used parables is that actually so not everyone would understand him. He used parables to confuse people or confound people. That's the impression that we're, we get from verses 11 and 12. Verse 10 introduces it where Jesus says, you know, he's alone with those around him and the 12 asked him about his parables and he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. So that, here's the reason why, they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. So this here makes it sound like Jesus uses parables in order that people don't understand him. Because if they did understand him, they would turn and be forgiven. And from this quote, it sounds like Jesus doesn't actually want that. Huh? I thought Jesus' whole point was people would understand him and they would turn and be forgiven. What is happening here? This is one of the hardest verses in Scripture in the New Testament. And there's no easy way out of it. And, and I think in some ways we just have to embrace the tension. But what Jesus is doing here with that quote is, is it's from Isaiah 6 which is Isaiah's call story, where God calls Isaiah, says, go preach by impending judgment to a people who have absolutely no desire to listen, and they're not going to listen to you. What a great call. Go forth and fail. Every preacher should have that in mind, right? Like, that is, that is many times our calling. Be faithful. Don't worry about the results. And so Jesus, when he uses this Isaiah citation, it's dripping with irony. Because just as in those days when God sent Isaiah to a people that were so hard-hearted, it seemed as if, how can this people be so hard-hearted? The only explanation, the ironic explanation, is it must be God made them that way if they're that obstinate and that hard-hearted and that unwilling to listen. What other explanation could there be? And so Jesus isn't saying, in effect, you know, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand because the last thing that they want, the last thing they want is to actually listen and to turn their hearts and to have their sins be forgiven. And so Jesus speaks in, in parables to, to conceal his words to outsiders, but, but to reveal them to insiders. Now again, we hear that and we go, well, uh, whoa, whoa, I thought Jesus was just like all inclusive and with him there's no insiders and outsiders. Everyone's in. Well, you know, who the insiders and outsiders were in the course of, of Jesus' ministry was a matter of some controversy. Scribes and Pharisees, outsiders. Tax collectors and sinners, insiders. Jesus' own immediate family, if we were just to read at the end of Mark chapter 3, they're outsiders. They're on, the, literally, Jesus is teaching in a house, and his family is on the outside looking in, trying to get him out, because they think he's lost his mind. But the insiders were, were, were the motley cast of characters who were gathered around him, who were willing to listen to him, and that verb, listen, is crucial, because it occurs more than a dozen times in this passage. Who, who's an insider? The person who is willing to listen to Jesus who's interested in his word, who's the outsider, it's the one who's indifferent or hostile. And so Jesus used parables then as a way of both concealing and revealing. It's like the pillar of cloud that separated the Egyptians and the Israelites in the exile. On the Egyptian side of that cloud, 
darkness. Everything's shrouded in darkness. And on the Israelite side, everything is basking in light. And so the parables serve that kind of same function. On the one side, it's all mystery. It doesn't make sense. On the other side, it's all of this insight. For insiders, they enlighten. For outsiders, they obfuscate. Now, another reason that Jesus taught in parables is that the things that he had to say were were, were so powerful or, or so dangerous that he couldn't say them directly. And even when he used parables, he got in trouble. When we get to Mark 12, and, and Jesus tells this parable about a vineyard and a vineyard owner who keeps sending people, and the people working the vineyard keep killing them. And after Jesus tells this parable, the religious leaders immediately says they sought to arrest him. And so even when Jesus uses parables, he gets in trouble. And so think if he had said what he had to say directly, he wouldn't have lasted five minutes. And in Mark, he, he barely lasts a year. And so parables are these coded messages because speaking the truth too directly is too dangerous, it's too powerful, it's too incendiary, it's too explosive. And parables, one thing we have to keep in mind when we read them is, is they're almost always intended to be provocative or, or like offensive in some way. They're, they're supposed to mess with someone who is hearing them. They're, they're a form of, of confrontation. And Jesus understood that the best way to do confrontation is, is to do it in a way where people might actually listen. Because if you just directly go at someone, what happens? The walls go up, the, the defenses go up, the force field goes up, the fingers go in the ears, la, 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 right? Like when someone attacks you, you go into defense mode. You don't go into a posture of listening. So Jesus knows what he's doing. He understands human nature. He understands that if he, if he wants to confront people, he's got to find a way where they're actually going to listen. And when his message is that, you know, all of these prophecies of the Old Testament, all of these prophecies of God's kingdom, all of these prophecies of the Messiah, they're coming true, but they're actually coming true in a way that you never would have expected, and in fact, in a way that subverts all of your expectations, which is immediately going to make people defensive. He, he has to use parables because if he hadn't, people wouldn't have listened. And in Mark, we, we have an example of someone who directly speaks truth to a powerful person. John the Baptist condemns Herod's, you know, relationship and he gets arrested, and then he gets his head on a platter. When you speak the truth too directly and too plainly to power, bad things happen. And so Jesus uses parables to, to differentiate between insiders and outsiders, and, and he uses them, uses them to code his explosive message for only those with ears to hear. But having said all that, Jesus also teaches in parables for some very understandable and I think more mundane but no less important reasons. Like, parables are interesting. When he started telling them, people would lean closer to listen. And parables are also a way to take, you know, abstract ideas and to make them concrete. You know, how do you explain things like the kingdom of God? Something for which we almost have no frame of reference. Well, tell a story about seeds. And how do you explain God's joy over a repentant sinner? Tell a story about a father and his prodigal son. How how do you answer this question, who is my neighbor? Tell a story about a Samaritan finding someone bloody on the side of the road. How do you explain the necessity of forgiveness in light of God's forgiveness of us? Well, tell a story about someone who forgave an impossibly large debt. And then that same person whose debt was forgiven turning around and not forgiving someone who owed him just a few dollars. And finally, and and the importance of this last point can't be overstated, that Jesus taught in parables because parables force people to think for themselves, right? They force people to connect 
the dots. It doesn't do that for them. Only the disciples uh, got the uh, teacher's edition explanation. And, you know, even they ended up at the end of the day being mostly clueless. And they don't come off looking great in Mark. Everyone else had to figure it out. And because we know that the worst way to help someone learn is to do the work for them. In my, my son Kyle's in second grade. His math homework. I am really good at Kyle's math homework. I am, am, I am amazing at second grade math. Addition, mastered it. Subtraction, I can do multiple figures. You know, I can do like four place subtraction. I'm very good. I can carry numbers. Remainders and division, I'm good at the remainders. I got it all. I really am good at second grade math. And so if he brings that to me and I take it and I finish it and I turn it in and his teacher goes, wow, amazing work. What has that accomplished for Kyle? Absolutely nothing. I mean, maybe showing him his dad is cool, but... <laughs> But besides, really good at second grade math, but nothing for him. It's done absolutely nothing for him. No, in, in order for us to learn, we have to be actually mentally invested and engaged at the work at hand. And that's, the, that's true of discipleship. Being a Christian means learning to use our brains and our imaginations in the right way, learning to think creatively and faithfully for ourselves about what it means to follow Jesus. That's why Jesus used parables. He wants us to wrestle with this, to think it out, to hash it out for ourselves together in community. But finally, I want to look specifically, briefly, at one of the parables Jesus told. The first one here in Mark chapter 4, which is traditionally called the parable of the sower. And the reason I want to look at this one specifically out of all the others is that for Jesus, this parable was key to understanding all the parables. He says to the disciples in verse 13, do you not understand this parable I just told you? How then will you understand all the parables? So somehow, if we can get some things about this, we're going to get some things about the other parables that Jesus tells. This is the meta, the meta parable. And so while traditionally this has been called the parable of the sowers, I think it's actually more accurate to call it the parable of the soils. Because Jesus spends almost no time at all explaining the meaning of the sower. He doesn't reflect a lot on the identity of the sower. He says simply, the sower sows the word. That's all we get about the sower. Now, we can glean some things about Jesus' own self-understanding from even that simple statement. And what does Jesus think his ministry is? He is the sower sowing the word. He's broadcasting the seed, which is the word, which is the message about the kingdom far and wide. And what we need to keep in mind is that contained within that seed, contained within the word, is, is almost an infinite capacity for multiplication and new life. And that tiny seed is contained in almost infinite capacity for multiplication and new life. I know I've told this story before, but for me, it's a very powerful illustration of the power for life in each tiny seed, is that this past summer, in the back corner of our backyard, we have an edible backyard now. You can eat any plant that's in the back, including the grass. I mean, almost every plant in our backyard can be eaten. It's, an, it's a bounteous harvest. A cornucopia comes from our backyard now. But one thing stood out amongst the rest. We planted a tiny butternut squash plant. One tiny seed, one shoot. And by the end of the summer, this one plant had overtaken our entire backyard. It, it was like a squash patch in our backyard. It, it was actually kind of obnoxious how much it grew. But squash after squash after squash just kept emerging from this one tiny plant. We're still eating butternut squash that was produced this summer. Amy this week made some delicious butternut squash stew or what was it? Brussels sprouts and butternut squash roasted in the oven. It was so delicious. My gosh, it was so good. But like this one tiny plant produced dozens of butternut squash. 
And that's what the power of the gospel has to bear fruit in all of our lives. And what determines whether or not this, the, the, the new life, the, the power of new life is latent within that seed itself. And so what determines whether or not that life is going to spring forth is the condition of the soil. And so if the message of the kingdom doesn't produce any fruit, it's not that there's something wrong with the seed or the sower. It's that there's something wrong with the condition of the soil. And so do we see why Jesus is speaking in parables here? It's an indirect way for him to kind of sideways confront his hearers, which includes us, to ask, is there any kingdom fruit in your life? Is there any evidence of joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, goodness, gentleness, humility, self-control? Is there any evidence of that in your life? If not, why? What's wrong with your soil? So this parable is an extremely clever way to cause people to, to self-examine the condition of their hearts. And there's three types of soil that Jesus highlights that aren't conducive to supporting kingdom life and growth. There's, there's the hard soil, the soil that's been trampled underfoot so that the, 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 the seed can't even penetrate the surface. It just sits there and can be snatched away by the birds of the air, which Jesus says is Satan, the enemy who doesn't want new life to flourish, but, but just wants death. You know, the hard soil, the, the soil that, for whatever reason, it, it can't hear the word. And the soil of our hearts can be hard because, you know, maybe we've been hurt by religion, and so we're just completely closed off to the message. Maybe because we, we've taken the posture of, of this age, which, which is detached irony and cynicism towards everything, you know, just kind of LOL, nothing matters. That's how we go through life. That's a hard heart. Our hearts can be hard because we believe, you know, one of these cultural narratives that says there's no such thing as God, there's no transcendent reality, that's all fairy tales and myths, and, and the only thing that's real is the material universe. But then there's the hard soil of, of legalism, of legalistic Christianity even, that doesn't want a relationship with God, but just some list of rules to follow, and so can never accept a word of grace. There's that hard soil, maybe the hardest soil of all, apathy, indifference. Just doesn't care to, to think even for a second about spiritual things that's too focused on the, the banalities of existence, of of things like work and food and travel and entertainment and politics and, you know, the state of our increasingly creaky bodies to ever spare a thought, a second thought for God and his kingdom. There's lots of hard soil out there. Lots of people, even in our churches, who will not spare a second thought for the word of God's inbreaking rule in Jesus Christ. And the thing about hard soil, when, when, when this soil is packed down tight and hard, is that it takes something painful usually to break it open. And that's what we see happening. Some crisis, some loss, some pain, right? Some kind of reckoning brings that shock, awakening to hard soil. And then there's the second kind of poor soil, the shallow and the rocky ground. And these are the people Jesus says they initially receive the word with joy, but they have no depth. As soon as any trouble comes, they fall away. And so Jesus' warning here is against shallow faith, the kind of faith that relies on religious experiences or sentiments. And, and when those go away and something bad happens, as it will, the whole house of cards comes crashing down. One quote I read this week said, Affliction, like the sun, brings growth to roots in good soil, but withers the shallow profession of faith. And so a Christianity that only penetrates the surface of our lives, it will not last. And then there's the third kind of poor soil, the soil that is filled with thorns. This is the soil of the, the divided heart, which says to Jesus, I love you, and, you know, fill in the blank. I want to be your faithful follower, 
and I want to be successful, completely successful in my career, and I want to be well thought of by the right kinds of people, and I want to live my life basically exactly how I want to, and I want to show up for you when it's most convenient for me. This is the heart of someone who is always holding something back from God. And when it comes to God's kingdom, divided hearts, divided loyalties, they don't work because when push comes to shove, right? When, whenever we've placed something else on par with Jesus and, and we've got to compromise something, invariably, inevitably, it's always going to be our loyalty to Jesus. Something else, that other thing is always going to win out. And we relate, I think, to the divided heart, to the crowded heart. There's lots of things that we want to accomplish and lots of things to be worried about, anxious about. But the problem is that when they become our focus, they choke out that new life that God wants to grow up inside of us. And then finally, at last, we get the three failed soils. Finally, we get the good soil. Which, frustratingly for us, Jesus does not describe in any sort of detailed way as the, this is the miracle grow for success. You know, do A, B, and C, and abundant fruit is going to be produced in your life. You know, uh, no, he just says, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word, and accept it and bear fruit. So like, hear and accept. And then there's this great, this great abundance, 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And so it seems that the difference between the good soil and the bad soil boils down to hearing and accepting. And so the challenge that Jesus presents us with is, is actually listening to him and allowing his word to take root in our lives, which presents us with the challenge of actually thinking for ourselves about how we can do that. One way, we can look at the bad soils and make, make a contrast. I, I think that's helpful because bad soil is hard. So we go, well, good soil is going to welcome, welcome the word so that it won't be snatched away right away. Bad soil also has no roots. And so good soil must welcome the word of Jesus so deeply that it, that it can't be withered by trouble or persecution. You know, bad soil is crowded, so good soil must prioritize Jesus' word so exclusively that other concerns don't strangle it. The parables, including this one, were intended to force us into a place of crisis, right? a place of confrontation within ourselves where we face an either-or proposition with the end goal always being discipleship. So the either-or here is, you know, either, am I going to be good soil or bad soil? Am I going to listen, obey, and persevere or not? So Jesus' parables, they present us with the, the perpetual and the perennial challenge of actually listening and thinking and putting into practice what we've heard and in fact, the very form of the parables, it goes at the heart of what the, what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is not some idea that one sits detached from with, with sort of this cold analysis. No, it's a reality into which one is invited to participate with your whole being, your whole heart, your whole life. And so in telling these parables, Jesus is inviting us into that reality. He's saying that God is on the move and come and join me in that work and do it right now. Become good soil. Become a fruitful seed. To those who have ears to hear, let them hear. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.